Come on, somebody, make some noise. Woo! Life change is happening at Life Church Buffalo, and it is so exciting to be alive and a part of what God is doing in our church. Listen, I just want to bring you up to speed when it comes to filling you in on how well we're doing at fulfilling our mission that God has given us, which is to reach every person with a demonstration of Christ and his kingdom. I was looking at the numbers uh, just yesterday, last night, and since Christmas, just in the last seven months, church, 74 people have made a decision to commit or re commit their lives to follow Jesus Christ. Woo! And 42 people have taken their next step to go public with their faith and get baptized. Man, that is why we exist as a church. And it is so awesome to be a part of it. Listen, if you're new with us, let me just take a chance to introduce myself. My name is Pete. And as you can tell, I get excited about having the privilege to serve in what God has called us to do as a church. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are so excited to have you joining us today as we are continuing a series we began last week on a look at the life of Joseph, an epic life uh, of the Old Testament superhero of our faith. And, And really, when we take a look at some of these characters, we recognize that they're not really superheroes at all. They're just ordinary men and women like you and I who faced the same challenges that you and I faced, except through God and through their faith and commitment to trust that God is who he says he is, they were able to do extraordinary things. But through this series, we're kind of asking one question over the course of the series, which is a question that easily flies off the radar of our lives. If you're not a Christian at all, maybe you've never considered this question. If you're a new Christian, maybe you're just beginning to ask this question. If you've been a Christian a long time, maybe it's been a while since you've asked the question. But regardless if things are good or bad in your life, this is the question we're taking a look at. What would someone in your circumstances do if they were absolutely confident that God is with them? It's an easy question to kind of skim over, but I want to encourage you to not do that. Because this is such an important question that really has the power to shape and influence the decisions we make and ultimately determine whether or not we'll ever get from the dream that God gives us for our lives into whether or not we actually step into the destiny that he's created us for. And this is a question that really seems to appear over and over again in Joseph's life. And so this really feels a little bit like story time to me. We're just kind of going through the life and the story of Joseph. And so it feels a little more natural and comfortable to me to just kind of sit down like I would with my boys before they go to bed and just read a Bible story. So that's what we're going to do today, if you're okay with that. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Okay. All right, good. That's a question that I think leads us to the place that I think God wants all of us to be. And like Joseph, when something comes into your life or when something happens in your life that you didn't see coming and that takes your life in the opposite direction of the dream that God has given you, how do we hold on to the promise that God is always with us? And that divorce you went through, how do you believe that God is still with you in that? And the diagnosis that you're facing right now, the abuse that you received when you were a child or maybe that you're receiving right now, the betrayal that you experienced from those closest to you. And see, so many people think that when they go through traumatic circumstances, they come to one of three conclusions. Either they think that God must not be with them, or if he is, he does not love them, or worst case scenario, people just believe, man, if God were real, this would not be happening in my my life, so God must not be real. 
Either he's not with them, he doesn't love them, or he's not real at all. And so last week, we kind of learned, um, as we set the backdrop of the story, that Joseph, you know, starts out as a, we hear that he's 17 years old. He's a 17-year-old tattletale, all right? Loves to tell on his brothers, get them in trouble, and he comes from a very dysfunctional home, one of 12 brothers that come from four different mothers. He's one of the youngest, and he's daddy's favorite. His dad gives him a coat of many colors, a long-sleeved, decorated coat that really gives him, you know... um, He gets off the hook when it comes to some of the work that the rest of the brothers have to do. And so his brothers can't stand him. Not only is it a tattletale, right? Not only is he daddy's favorite, but he gets off the hook and doesn't have to do the manual labor that they've got to do. Then to make matters worse, okay, they already hate him, but then he starts having these dreams from God that seem to indicate that he's one day going to rule over his family. And in his youthful enthusiasm, he's not very mature yet, he, he goes running to his family and shares these dreams with them. Like, aren't you guys excited? I'm going to rule over you. They're like, no, that's not that. Joseph, what are you thinking? So his brothers, like, they've had it up to here. They're like, we got to get rid of this guy. We've had enough. We can't take it anymore. And so one day, you know, Joseph's father sends him out to check on his brothers and they're grazing the flocks and they see him coming. And they're like, okay, here comes that dreamer. Let's, let's get rid of this kid. Let's just kill him. Let's kill him. And so while they sit down to have lunch after they throw him into a pit trying to figure out how they're going to do this, you know, this apparent mercy rises up in them and says, well, we won't get anything out of this deal if we just kill him. So there was a passing band of, you know, merchants and traders that were on their way to Egypt. And they're like, look, let's sell him instead. Let's get some money out of this deal and let's sell him. And we won't ever have to worry about seeing him again. And so that's kind of where we left Joseph off. And likewise, we learn from that that when God gives us dreams, you know, like God gave Joseph a dream, sometimes things will happen that the enemy wants to destroy us with. And when God gives you a dream, the the devil mounts a defense. We learned that on Wednesday night at the night of worship and baptisms. That if he can bring hardships into your life that will cause you to question the nearness of God, then you'll never attempt to fulfill the destiny that God has created you for. And just if Joseph experienced some things in his life that took his life in the opposite direction of his dreams, the enemy will mount a defense in our lives that will cause you to question. And there were some things that happened in Joseph's life that he would have never chosen. And there's some things that happened in our lives that we would never choose. See, Joseph would have never chosen to be abused and thrown into a pit by his brothers and sold to some foreign slave traders And likewise, we would never choose to go through the abuse or the betrayal that some of us have experienced. But here's what we learn, okay, that sometimes what the devil tries to destroy you with, God wants to use to develop you. That's something that we learn through Joseph's life. What the devil wants to destroy you with, God wants to use to develop you. And as we continue our look into the life of Joseph, I want to start by sharing with you a perspective that King David had of Joseph's life hundreds of years after Joseph actually lived. He writes this in Psalm 105, verse 16. He says, when he, when God summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, which we're going to learn about next week, there would eventually be a famine that comes across the land. God had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. He was put in shackles. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he said came to pass. Listen to this. The word of the Lord tested him. 
The NLT translate that last phrase, the, the Lord tested Joseph's character. You see, when you get a word or a dream from God for your life, that word will be tested and that word will test you. Will you continue to hold on to and believe that God is who he says he is and that he'll do what he said he would do? Will you hold on to the truth that he will always be with you? You see, there's a process that we go through from the time that God gives us a dream before we actually step into our destiny. And that process involves a number of tests along the way. And the heart of all of those tests is this one question, this question that we're looking at. What would somebody do in each of these tests if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? There's a teacher by the name of Graham Cook that I like to listen to. And he says that Joseph became a true man of God because he came to a place of understanding on how God works. He understood the process and he submitted to that process so that he could be personally transformed so that he could be effective for God no matter what circumstances he encountered. So listen, if you're going to be anybody for God, if you're going to do anything significant with your life, then you need to submit your life to the process that God will use to shape your character, which will prepare you to fulfill your destiny. And see, that process, you know, Graham Cook teaches in this one um, teaching that he has called Why Wounded and Betrayed Believers Are So Useful to God. And if you've ever gone through betrayal or wounding, then I would strongly encourage you to look up that teaching by Graham Cook, Why Wounded and Betrayed Believers Are So Useful to God. But in that teaching, he gives four steps that God uses to take your dream before you actually step into a destiny. Four steps in this process that really serve as kind of a cycle in your life. And so if you feel like you're in this revolving cycle, it's probably because you are. And I wanna quickly go through these four processes, these four steps from dream to destination. The first is declaration. A declaration of God's intent and purpose for your life. That's really what prophecy is. God speaking into your life the plans and purposes that he has for you. Because I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. The first one is a declaration, and that's what happened in Joseph's life. God declared what his purpose was for his life by giving him a dream. But that declaration will then plunge you into a season of distress, which is the second thing. Where God has to work in your heart to get out of your heart all of the things that shouldn't be there. To, to set a foundation in your life where you know how to trust him and he builds your character, which leads you to the third part of the process, which is development. And see, distress and development go hand in hand, but too often times we're so concerned and worried about the distress that we're in and we're crying out to God to change our circumstances to rescue us from that when really God wants to use those circumstances to develop us. So distress and development go hand in hand. And then when your development reaches a point where God feels you are ready for the next place of your journey and, and moving towards your destiny. And when your development reaches a, a point that pleases the heart of God himself, you will then step into a demonstration of all that God said he would do in the first place. And that's when you begin to inherit your destiny. Now that right there could be a four-week series all by itself, but I just wanted to kind of put that in there so you can kind of put perspective to some of the things that you've walked through in your life that maybe seem to take your life 
in the opposite direction of where you really want to go. And so we're going to kind of step into that phase of the process over the next couple of weeks. But what we're learning from the life of Joseph is that we really can't control the things that happen to us. But we can choose to respond in every new set of circumstances and challenges that we face like anyone would if they were confident that God was with them. Because when you respond in your circumstances as a person who is confident that God is with them, then you will see God in your circumstances. That's the principle that we're learning throughout this series, that when you respond in your circumstances, whether you're rich or poor, whether things are going great in your life or things are going horribly, when you respond in your circumstances like someone who's confident that God is with them, then you'll begin to see God in your circumstances. And so if we can learn that there's nothing we can do to change what happens to us, but you can control how you respond to the crappy circumstances that come to you, then you'll begin to see God in every phase and season of life, the good ones and the bad ones. And so last week, we, we left the story off where Joseph was taken to Egypt, sold to Potiphar as a slave. His brothers think that they've gotten rid of him for good, and I'm sure Joseph assumes that he's never going to see his family again. I think that we could all agree that Joseph was dealt a pretty bad hand, pretty raw deal, right? But have you ever experienced like a string of bad luck where things just go from bad to worse? Like that saying, when it rains, it pours, like, God, really, can, can it get any worse than this? Like you get fired from your job and then on the way home, you get a flat tire. Seriously. Or maybe worse yet, somebody who is going through this right now in our own church, whose wife cheated on him, going through a divorce, and then he has to move out of his house that he purchased. Things go from bad to worse. How do you hold on to the promise when your life just is spiraling and spinning out of control? That's, I'm sure, what Joseph felt like, and that's what we're going to see as we continue a look at his life today. And we read that while God was with Joseph in Potiphar's household, God blessed Potiphar because of Joseph. And from that, we learned that the favor of God is found in the presence of God, and we can experience the favor of God in our least favorite moments. And that God will sometimes choose to bless other people because of us being present in their lives, because God's presence is with us. So we're going to pick up his story right where we left off with Joseph kind of overseeing the affairs of Potiphar's household. Potiphar was, you know, an official for Pharaoh, captain of the guard, military commander. And we're going to see that as a reward for Joseph's faithfulness, he finds himself in a no-win situation. So we're going to pick it up in Genesis 39, verse 6, and it says, Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Slave, come to bed with me. Now the text doesn't say slave, but it's implied. All right, he was a slave. This is not an ask. This is a command. Slave, come to bed with me and have sex with me right now. And Joseph finds himself in a no-win situation because if I do what she says, what, what she's asking me to do, surely Potiphar's going to find out and have my head. And if I say no, then she's going to be offended and feel rejected. And who knows what she'll do with me. So I'm in a no-win situation. So I might, as well just, I might as well just give in, right? I might as well experience some pleasure for all my hardship and stretch this thing out as long as it'll go. 
But listen to his response. And this is how we know that Joseph somehow, with, with no Bible, with no church, with no preaching, with no theology, all he has to go on are a few random stories of the God of his great-grandfather Abraham. There was no law. There was no Ten Commandments at this point, which means there was no commandment to not covet your neighbor's wife. There was no commandment yet to not commit adultery. See, Joseph knew very little about his God, but he had enough of a revelation of who God was that he was able to respond this way. Look at verse 8. But he refused, and he said to her, With me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because by the way, you are his wife. Hello. How then, look at how he responds. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? You mean the God who hasn't done much for you lately? You mean the God who watched as you were sold by your brothers? You mean the God who didn't intervene to rescue you? That's amazing to me. Why would he respond with such a commitment to God in circumstances like this? Because anyone else in that same situation would have assumed that if there is a God, then surely he has long since forsaken me. Why would he express that kind of faith in God? Because I think somehow this 20-something-year-old kid understood something that so many of us miss, that his responsibility to his circumstances wasn't to sort them all out or try to figure it out. His responsibility was simple but not easy. His responsibility was simply to respond the way anyone would respond in those circumstances if they were absolutely confident that God was with them. And so he says, I can't do this because to do this would be to sin against my God. This is incredible to me. Like, is it just me or is it sometimes hard to remain faithful to God when it doesn't seem like he's been faithful to you? Is it sometimes hard to remain faithful to God when you've prayed on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and by Friday nothing has happened so you're just left to your own assumptions to believe that God must not be with you. He must not hear you. Like I'm doing everything by the book. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I might as well abandon my plan and do something else. And see, that's why every single day we all have a choice to make. I can make decisions based upon my interpretation of my circumstances, things are bad, so God must not care, or I can make decisions based on the promise that God is with me, and therefore I will respond. My responsibility is just to live my life as a person who is confident that he's with me. And so perhaps for the first time in her life, this woman of privilege, Potiphar's wife, is told no. And things don't go well. See, slaves in that culture were not permitted to say no. They had no say in the matter. Slaves just obeyed. And yet this Hebrew slave has the audacity to tell Potiphar's wife, I will not sleep with you because I will not sin against my God. Incredible. Now, Potiphar must not have been paying 
very much attention to his wife because we see from verse 10 that she is very persistent in her attempts to seduce this young, attractive Hebrew boy. Verse 10, though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. He continues to stay strong, which, listen, must have been hard. This is a 20-something-year-old kid who's in the prime of his life. He's got some strong, natural desires, right? No doubt he was tempted, but he kept responding. It would have been so easy for him to say, like, what the heck, trying to honor God is not doing me any good, so I might as well just, like, experience some pleasure. But no, he continues to respond as a man who's confident that God is with him. And God rewards him for his faithfulness. Look at verse 11. One day, he goes into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants are inside. And she caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. And when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she starts blowing all kinds of whistles, sounding the alarm. She calls her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew's been brought to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. Liar. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. So because hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, she frames him. She falsely accuses him of rape. And later that day, Potiphar comes home. And she tells him her version of the story. And when his master heard the story, his wife told him, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. He felt betrayed by the slave who he had entrusted his entire household to. And so Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Which is interesting to me, side note, for those of you who know the end of the story, Joseph winds up serving as number two in command of the entire nation of Egypt, a place of great power. And it's interesting to me that he served in Potiphar's house, a military commander, for many years. And do you think that as number two in command of the entire nation of Egypt, he would need to know how to command the army? And then he goes into prison where all of the king's prisoners are. And do you think that he was privy to some political conversations in that environment that would help him when he would serve as number two in command of all of the nation of Egypt. See, a lot of times we don't understand the divine positioning of God as he develops us to prepare us for his destiny for our lives. But Joseph, listen, where am I? Here I am. Puts him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners are. So he gets punished for the very thing he had the self-control not to do. He gets the exact same punishment that he would have gotten had he done the thing that he was accused of doing, even though he didn't. Even though he remained faithful to God. And isn't this the point in your life at which you just throw your hands up and say, why am I even a Christian? Why do I pray? Why do I try? What's the point? I'm doing everything I know I'm supposed to be doing, and yet God seems to be against me. And yet we see again in the next verse, but while Joseph was there 
in prison, the Lord was with him. That phrase keeps coming back. And this is the point at which if I were Joseph, I'd be like, okay, okay, okay. Don't be with me anymore. I need a break. All this being with me has been very difficult for me. Since you've been with me, God, I've been ripped from my family, thrown into a pit, sold as a slave, falsely accused of rape, and now I'm in prison. I need a break. Go be with somebody else. Go be with my brothers. That's, that's a great idea. Go be with my brothers a lot. If I were Joseph, I'd be thinking that if God were with me, I wouldn't be in prison. She would be in prison, right? The one who falsely accused me of attempted rape. Because good things are supposed to happen to good people. And bad things are supposed to happen to bad people. If I were Joseph, I'd be like, listen, God, I'd rather be without you and at home than with you in prison. Just being honest, that's how I would be. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness. Now that's a stretch. I don't know how you define kindness, but being thrown in prison doesn't feel very kind to me. And yet the Lord showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. I don't want to know a prison warden. If you know the prison warden, things are not going well for you. If God is blessing you, then you don't know the prison warden, right? I mean, if God is with you, you're not in prison. If God is with you, none of this is happening. What is this all about? And as Anley Stanley says, the story of Joseph illustrates for us that bad things have been happening to good people. People who believe in God for a very long time. And God has been with those people in bad times for a very long time. And you know what Joseph did while he was in prison? He did what he did every time he encountered a new set of circumstances. He simply responded the way anyone would if they were confident that God was with them. And as a result, Verse 22, the warden put Joseph in charge of all of those held in the prison. Apparently, this kid had a strong administrative gifting because Potiphar put him in charge of his household. He winds up in prison. The warden notices something about this kid, and he puts him in charge of the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. But God, this isn't what I wanted to do. Like, I didn't want to become the administrative assistant to the prison warden. I didn't. Now, is it true that if this was your story, you'd have bailed out on God a long time ago? Because God, if I don't see you in the circumstances, then I'm just going to assume that you're not there or that you don't care. And I've got to do something else. Like, I can't wait for you to show up and, and do some miraculous thing. I've got to make some things happen. And here's what Joseph discovered, and this is what I want us to walk away with today. It is only when we look to and trust God in the circumstances that we find him. 
It's only when we respond in our circumstances as a person who's confident that God is with us will we see him in the circumstances. It's only when we expect it that we'll experience it. It's only when we accept this as truth in our lives will we begin to experience it in our lives. And once again, this prison warden, this non-believer, didn't believe in Joseph's God, noticed something about this kid that was so unusual. And as the story goes on, a few years go by, and a few new prisoners are signed in. Because Joseph's basically in charge of the prison. He kind of is processing all of the paperwork for incoming prisoners and writes down the names of these two new guys that are coming in. And the first guy says, well, I'm Pharaoh's cupbearer. And the next guy says, I'm the chief baker. And these two guys had apparently done something to tick Pharaoh off because he throws them in prison. And they're assigned to Joseph, the scripture tells us. They're assigned to Joseph. He's in charge of them. He's kind of over that section of the prison. And one morning, it says that these guys come down to the mess hall for breakfast where all the prisoners come. And they're looking particularly dejected that morning. And I'm thinking, well, of course they are. They're in prison. Everyone's blue in prison, right? Well, apparently they were more blue than normal. And so Joseph asks him, say, hey, what's, what's wrong, guys? Like, what's going on? Why are you so sad? And so they explained to him that they both had dreams that night that seemed to mean something, but there was nobody there that could explain to them what their dreams meant. And Joseph says, well, don't dream interpretations belong to God? I know God, even though it doesn't seem like he knows me, but I know God, and why don't you tell me your dreams, and I'll see if God will share with me what those dreams mean. And the cupbearer goes first. He explains to Joseph his dream, and Joseph tells him, hey, Great news, the cupbearer says. He says to the cupbearer, in three days, you're out of here. In three days, Pharaoh is going to restore you to your position and you will once again serve Pharaoh his wine. And I love this next part because Joseph lets us in on the fact that he is not happy with his circumstances. Listen, responding to your circumstances as a person who's confident that God is with you doesn't mean that you're gonna be happy with your circumstances. Joseph is not happy about being in prison, and we see that in his response to this cupbearer. So in Genesis 40, verse 15, 40, verse 14, but when all goes well with you, so he finishes telling him his dream, and he says, okay, in three days, you're going to be serving Pharaoh, and when you're doing that, when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness, parentheses, not the kind of kindness that God has shown me, and here's how you can show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of here. I don't want to be here. I was forcibly carried off from the land of Hebrews. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. In other words, in three days, when you're serving Pharaoh his wine, okay, would you just drop a hint? Would you just mention my name to him? Would you just say, hey, Pharaoh, guess what? Like, you know, I met this really interesting chap while I was in prison. You know, when you, we had that misunderstanding and, and you threw me into prison, but it was no big deal because here I am back serving you. Everything's good. But there was this really interesting guy and I had a dream and he told me what it meant. And here I am and it came true. Like, would you just like drop a subtle hint and tell him my story? Tell him I don't deserve to be here and get me out of here. And if you're a Christ follower, you've probably done the same thing. You've probably tried to talk to somebody and ask them to talk to someone who had power to change your circumstances, to change your situation, right? Like, God, I really need this deal. So could you really just, could you work this out for me? God, could you just make her say yes? 
God, I'm not asking you to rearrange the cosmos, but could you just change this one circumstance for me for my benefit? We try to bargain with God. And so the baker, seeing the favorable interpretation of the cupbearer's dream, says to Joseph, hey, that, that's really cool. Maybe, maybe my dream means something similar. And he proceeds to tell Joseph his dream, and Joseph's like, ooh, yeah, um, yeah, I got to shoot it straight with you. Um, in three days, you're out of here too, but in a different way. In three days, Pharaoh's going to lift off your head and hang your body on a pole, and the birds are going to eat away at your flesh. I'm not really sure why Joseph went into so much detail, because if it were me, I'd have been like, yeah, I got nothing. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> and just let it play out. But Joseph tells him what the, what the dream meant. And sure enough, three days later, there's a knock on the dungeon door. And these two guys are called out and stand before Pharaoh. And the cupbearer is restored to his position. And the baker is beheaded. And I'm sure Joseph was sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, it really came true. I, I, did, I did hear from God. And any day now, any day now, the cupbearer is going to tell Pharaoh about me. A day goes by, two days go by. Maybe he just hasn't had an opportunity yet. Surely the knock is going to come on the dungeon door and, you know, I'm going to be out of here because Pharaoh's going to know that I don't belong in here. A week goes by, two weeks go by. Look at how chapter 40 ends. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And I think maybe for some of us in here today, we feel like that's the story of our lives. We feel forgotten, abandoned, cast aside. I don't know how many of you have been there or maybe are there now, but we all go through things in life that test our faith and ultimately bring us to a breaking point. And when I pray and nothing changes, what am I supposed to do? How do I get through this? And once again, the answer is simple but difficult. When life goes from bad to worse, rather than questioning God's presence in your life, you've got to double down on the belief that he is always with you. He will never forsake you. And your responsibility is to simply do what anyone would do in that situation if they were confident that God was with them. You see, every day we have a choice to make. Am I going to define God by my ability to interpret my circumstances? I mean, look at what I'm going through. God must not love me. He must not care about me. He must not be here. He must not be with me. Or am I going to respond to and define God based upon what he has promised me? See, if Joseph tried to respond or define God by his circumstances, he'd be like, okay, let me put this together. My brothers sell me. Potiphar's wife frames me. The cupbearer forgets me. Hmm. What should I make about God based upon those circumstances? Or am I simply going to trust that God is who he says he is and that he will never leave me and never forsake me? That's the decision you have every time you open your mouth when you're in an argument with your husband or your wife. That's the decision you have every time you have an opportunity to 
cheat someone or take advantage of someone. That's the opportunity you have. That's the decision you have every time you face temptation. And listen, that's the decision you have when God has blessed you beyond your wildest imagination and you have security and you have money. It's the same thing either way. That's the decision you face. Am I going to respond to this situation as a person who's confident that God is with me? Or will I measure God and his will and care and love for me based upon what I'm going through? I'm gonna tell you how huge this is. Because if you fast forward to the New Testament and you read about some of the things that Jesus said and taught, it's almost unbelievable. It's hard to imagine. It seems so unrealistic. And yet Jesus walked this earth as a man who was confident that God was with him. And some might think, well, yeah, it's easy because he was the son of God. He was God. So of course he could say those things. And of course he was confident. But listen, Not only was he fully God, he was also fully man. And he came to show us what it looked like and that it was possible as a human to be confident that God is with you in every situation. And he was confident that God would be with us as well. But he said some crazy things. Like he was talking to his disciples in John 14 when he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And sometimes I think, how can you tell me not to let my heart be troubled? Do you ever read verses like that when you're in a season of trouble and be like, I don't, God, like I'm troubled, yet you're telling me to not let my heart be troubled. Do you know what's going on in my life? And Jesus would say, well, yeah, but God is with you. I'm not telling you to not let your heart be troubled because of what you're going through. I'm telling you to not let your heart be troubled because I am with you. He would say in verse 18, just a few verses later, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Do you know why he said that? Because he knew they would feel like orphans once he left them. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Here it is again. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You know, the apostle Paul who was at one point a religious zealot who hated Jesus and the followers of Jesus, but would eventually come face to face with the risen and resurrected Jesus on his way to go persecute some Christians. And he would write some things to a church in Corinth that detailed and described all of the hardships that he had to go through as a follower of Jesus. And Joseph went through some difficult things and chose to hold on to the truth that God was always with them. And we see that Paul had the same ability and he encourages the Corinthians with this. He says, listen, guys, I've been in prison numerous times. I was flogged many times. I've been whipped five times, three times beaten with rods, once pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've constantly been on the move been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from people who are not Jews, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, in danger from false believers. I think he was in danger. He, I've gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. I would say this guy had a string of bad luck. I would say that Paul knew what it was like when things go from bad to worse. This man knew trials, and like Joseph, he could have easily assumed that God must not be with me. But because not only did he know that God was with him, but also in him, he wrote this to the church in Ephesus. He said, I pray 
And listen, I want you to receive this for yourself today. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Remember last week I talked to you about when Jesus said in John that he would leave the spirit of truth when he goes. He would send the spirit of truth who would always be with us and would also be in you. And Paul is saying the same thing, that he would strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He will always be with you. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Listen, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Can I ask you a question? How different would your life look like if you believed you were filled with the fullness of God? The fullness of the one who is the creator of heaven and earth lives inside of you. How different would your response to your circumstances be if you believed this to be true, that you were filled to the measure of all the fullness of God? I think our life would look a little different. I think our responses would be a little different. And so here's the final challenge. What does someone in your marriage do who's confident that God is with them? What does someone who's struggling with a son or daughter do if they're confident that God is with them? What does someone in your financial situation or your job situation do if they're confident that God is with them? What would you do today, tomorrow, if you were confident that God was with you and that the fullness of God lives inside you. That's what God wants us to take a deep breath and do. And when we do, we will find God in the circumstances. And other people will sense that perhaps there's something different. And perhaps God is with you. And if he can be with you, then maybe... He can be with them too. You know, next week, things take a big upswing for Joseph and he doesn't change his strategy. But listen, by the time things turn around for Joseph, he is 30 years old. He was sold by his brothers when he was 17, which means that for 13 years, in the craziest circumstances and continuing opposition, with circumstances that would make anyone believe that God is not with me, he chose to respond as a person who was confident that God is with me and that God was actually working and engineering all of these circumstances for something unbelievable that launches the rest of the story of the Old Testament and ultimately would usher in Jesus Christ himself. That's what hung in the balance on Joseph's responses. You never know how your response to a situation will impact future generations. Listen, if Joseph responded differently and he was never put in charge as number two in command of all of Egypt, the grain isn't restored during the famine and Jacob's family dies in the famine and Jesus would come through Jacob's line. That's the power of responding to situations as a person who's confident that God is with you. You never know who God wants to save in your lineage 
if you'll respond in your crisis, in your hardship, in your trial, as a person who's confident that God is with you. God was there for Joseph, and that same God has made you this promise. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. I will always be with you, and I will put my spirit inside of you. Now go live your life as if you really believe that. Here's how King David put it in Psalm 23, very famous psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because after all, I am the king. No. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because of all the wealth and power I have. No. What does it say? Help me finish it. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And I will live as a person who's confident that God is with me. What would that look like in your world? What would that look like if just starting tomorrow, just try it for one day. When you wake up tomorrow, determine. What would it look like for me to respond to every text message, every phone call, every email, every circumstance? Not like you normally would, but as a person who first asks, okay, if I knew that God was with me, how will I respond in the situation? What does that look like for you? And then simply do that. And then look for God in the circumstance. And maybe that will be the start of something new in your journey of following him. The God who has invited you to call him Heavenly Father. Let me pray for you today. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, which lays a foundation for us that we can stand on. Father, in this room today and listening to this message, there are people in extreme circumstances who so badly want to believe this and cling to this. God, would you give them the wisdom to know what that looks like in their situation? God, for the people who are in tough marriages, for the people who are struggling with prodigal children, for the man who's thinking there is no next move for him in his career, for the woman who feels abandoned, for the student who feels bullied or is struggling with their identity or their place in this world. Father, even in the hopelessness, even in the darkness, even with the sense that some have, like Joseph, maybe they've been forgotten. Father, would you give us the courage and the insight to know what it would look like to simply do what anyone would do in our circumstance if they were confident that you were with them. Lord, and as we approach life this way, I pray that you would graciously allow us to see you in our circumstances and that we would not lose hope because you are the God who has promised to be with us wherever we go. I believe that you brought these people here today to hear this message so that they would have enough strength to make it one more day, to not give up, to not throw in the towel. The devil wants to interrupt them because they have something that this generation needs. There are Josephs here today that need to respond to their situation as a person who is confident that you're with them so that you can save those in our lineage, God. Because ultimately, that's what you want. 
to demonstrate to the world who you are and that many would come to know you. God, strengthen us today. Give us the, the courage to believe this and to respond no matter what our circumstances would say as a person who's confident that you're with us. And Lord, that we would just, again, have the ability to see you in our circumstances. God, that we would expect it so that we can experience it. Lord, thank you for promising to never leave us. In Jesus' name, amen.